When, when you, how many of you growing up had a brother in your family? How many of you had a brother? Okay, did you get on with your, your brother? Your brothers? Mm, not entirely sure. How many of us grew up without a brother? May have had a sister or something, but not a brother. Okay, that's like me. Okay, did you want a brother? <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? I, I wanted a brother, but I wanted one that was younger than me. Right? I didn't want an older, bigger, taller, stronger brother that could boss me about. I, I, did, want, I did want a brother. I had a sister, and I love my sister. She's wonderful. But, you know, would have, would have quite liked a brother. Now imagine this. Imagine you could choose any, any man from anywhere in the world to be your blood brother. Who would you choose if you could have the ultimate brother? Of course, I know for Ava it's Peter already. We, we, we know that, of course. But uh, somebody else. Somebody else. So if you could choose anybody to be your brother that you, you, know, you would have grown up with, you would know, you'd be able to call on them. They, you know, who would that be? Yeah? David Beckham. <laughs> I can understand that, Joe. Nelson Mandela. Imagine if he'd been your brother. Wow. Okay. Who else would you like to have? Your mom's younger brother as your brother. Mm, mm, mm. Okay. Anybody else? Who'd you, who would you have? Who would you choose? Your cousin to be your actual brother. Okay. All right. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? it our our brother-sister relationships shape a lot of how we grow up, how we see the world, how we relate to other people. It's huge. One of the, here's the thing, one of the greatest privileges of being a Christian is that we get adopted, not just so that God is our father, but that Jesus becomes our brother. Now, who else would we want to have more than Jesus as a brother? Isn't it, isn't it something that perhaps in the Christian life we understand in technically, but I wonder how much we, we truly value and appreciate how fortunate we are that Jesus is your brother. He's my brother, not just our brother in a general sense. And he is our Lord, he's our master, he's our, so many things, savior, but, but he's our brother. Can you imagine what it might have been like to grow up with Jesus? I'm not sure it would have been easy necessarily, but it would have been very different. And today, what I would like to share about, what I think a lot of this passage is about, is a lot of this passage is really about what it means to be in Jesus' family and what it really means to have Jesus as your brother. So that's going to be our focus uh, here as we talk about what Jesus is doing, because what he's doing in chapter 3 and, and a lot through the Gospels is he's establishing a new family. Right before the passage we just are going to look at, he's appointed the apostles, and there are 12 of them. And there are 12 because they are constituting a new Israel, a new family of God. He's creating a family, in a sense. And in this passage we have, uh, from verse 20, we've got the family at the beginning, and then we've got the controversy 
with the uh, Pharisees, with the teachers of the law. And then we have family again at the end. And by the way, just a technical thing for those of you that like this kind of thing, this is called a Markan sandwich, to give you a theological term. A Markan sandwich, a sandwich that Mark does. So one of the things that Mark does all through the gospel is he has a lot of these sandwiches where you start one story, then another story um, gets sort of inserted and all happens, and then there's the, the conclusion of the first story. We'll see more of those as we go through the book of Mark as we preach through it. And this is the first one in the book of Mark. And there's always a connection between the two stories. You've got the story of the family. They turn up. He's out of his mind. And at the end, they, uh, they, 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 they send someone in to get him, to talk to him. And, but in between, we've got the teachers of the law and this discussion about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. There's a connection here because it's a, so much of it is about those who want to be part of his family, those who have an openness towards that, and those who are closed off to it and can't be part of his family. So a lot of this is actually, I think, about that. So let's set a bit of context and then we'll, we'll uh, dig into what I think this might mean for, for us here in Watford. So what's going on? It seems that um, he's entered a house and in the Greek it could be his house. So you remember in Mark 2 earlier we talked about the paralyzed man coming through the house. It may well have actually been his house. He could be again back at his house here with all the crowds and all the people gathered. So he's gone into that house, possibly his own, and they're not even able to eat. Um, and the family turn up. Now, let me ask you this question. Why do you think the family have turned up? Why have they appeared at this point? He's been doing a lot of other things in chapters 1, 2, and 3, healings and, and eating with sinners and controversy in the synagogue and uh, violating the Sabbath in the way that the uh, Pharisees would see it. He's been doing a lot of things, but now they turn up to take charge of him, and the word there is the same word you'd use for arresting somebody. So they're not there to have a little chat and a conversation with him. They're there to get him by the hand and drag him out and take him away kind of forcibly. That's why it's the mother and the brothers, because presumably they needed the rest of the brothers to make this happen. So it's like they've ganged up, come along, and said, we're taking charge of you. So why do you think they've done that now? What do you think is going on? Okay. Get him out of the situation. He's in a, in a difficult situation. Yeah. Okay. I think that's quite likely, yes. Any other thoughts? Why have they turned up? Yeah. What about they miss him? They miss him. Yeah, he's left home. Yes, he's left the family home, left the family business. Almost certainly they would have been connected in that way. It's what was normal in those days. Okay, so they miss him. All right. And be worried about his well-being. Yeah, Simon? Yeah, it's not so much he's a bit out of the box, perhaps, as he's blown the box apart. And, right? He's so far away from what's normal. Mm. Yeah, any other thoughts, Sean? Like at the moment of family meeting where they decide, this is not as much a stop. And then there's a reflection about your house, and he's mm. totally gone down a rabbit hole. He needs to go and, he's not listening to reason, and he's physically going to get him. Mm. Yeah. 
somebody. Yes, yes, we did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Took a damn bad reason. Um, and uh, you know, I can imagine being discussed, like um, Charlie used to do in science fiction. Um, yeah, but they just need to take him in hand. He's clearly not looking after himself from a mum's perspective. He can't even eat. You know, he's yeah, getting himself in trouble with the uh, teachers of the law. Mm. Getting out of hand. We need a family conference. Okay, we need a family conference. We've probably all had some of those in our time. Um, I think it's interesting, a couple of thoughts uh, on this, and then we'll talk about the, the uh, teachers of the law and tell me what you think of what's going on there. But I think a couple of thoughts would be, first of all, just again on a sort of more theological, technical point, this is one of the things that helps me to believe that the Bible is true. Because why would the early church make up a story like this, that his own family thought he was mad? You wouldn't make that up to, as, a, as evidence for Christianity. You'd want his family agreeing with him, following along. So it's one of those things that's just in there, and we can miss the significance of it. That it was tr the Bible is truthful to life, that he appeared to be so bizarre that even his own family thought he was out of his mind. Perhaps he's bringing disgrace on the family name. They're, you know, that's maybe what's going on. He's certainly in conflict with the authorities, as somebody mentioned. We need to remember, of course, um, his, you could say, questionable origins. He was born of a virgin. I mean, that's enough of a controversy for one family, let alone what he's now doing. So you've got this going on, perhaps, in the background. Of course, in that culture, it's a shame and honor culture. Some of us might relate to more than others. In the West, we don't see this so much. But in that part of the world, in many parts of the world, the worst thing you can do of anything is to bring shame or disrepute on your family. It's more significant than anything else. Uh, they go to arrest him. They'd say he's not even able to eat. Now, here's the thing I, uh, it's worth considering. It's not actually true that he wasn't able to eat because here is somebody who fed 4,000 people. Here is somebody who fed 5,000 people. So Jesus is capable of creating food any moment he wants to. So it's not he's not able to. It's interpreted that, um, as he, that he wasn't able to eat, but actually he's capable of it. He must be choosing not to. And that's a different kind of situation. The family are not reading the situation actually accurately. Imagine also for Jesus how painful it would be for him that his own family think he's mad. Knowing you're not. Not deluded. Not paranoid. But hearing that that was the opinion of his family, that, and that would be difficult, wouldn't it? <coughs> we have disputes sometimes in our families, but for the entire family, the extended family, to think that you're mad, that must have been hurtful. For Jesus himself. And ultimately, we're going to see this in a bit more detail in a moment. But his family feel they're separated from him. But the point here is not so much about excluding family. The point is more about the family not understanding what he's about and who he really is. And we'll come back to that a little bit later. So let's talk about the teachers of the law. They come down from Jerusalem. He's possessed by Beelzebub, they say. So what are, what's there going on with them? What do you think is their deepest concern? What would you say? Why are they accusing him in this way? 
Why are they giving him such a hard time? Why are they making these really um, very incendiary accusations, you could say, <laughs> about him? What are they really most worried about? What's driving them to come all the way from Jerusalem up to the north of the country? It's a long way. Very inconvenient. What would drive them to do all of that? What do you think? What's going on with them? I don't know. And my dad instantly said, she's gone mad. You are mad. And um, it was a very, very tricky, I think that is probably the only time I felt insecure in being in my family. Because all of a sudden, everything just kind of went wrong. And I had to think about this situation as well. Families get threatened when they feel like this child is about to to destroy everything and, and they just and, and I, I think in hindsight I think that's the way my dad felt he thought what in the world is wrong with this child and also because I was very outspoken I would tell it it didn't matter who he just thought this girl is going to go to church and just go open her mouth she is mad and right. it was a really, really challenging time and I, I think that's what's going on here. I mean, just Jesus just declaring the word of God against these teachers of the law who have been there for many, many years, older than him, yeah. older than, than his mom, possibly. But can we really put Jesus to the test? Mm, would have been, yes. Taiwo, did you want to add something? Yes. Um, I think he's been pulling crowds from probably the synagogues and from the streets and they don't understand it was a spiritual movement so they might be thinking he might turn into a political thing and the Roman authority mm -hmm. might descend on them. Yeah. It could be political ramifications as to what's going on here and that would threaten the Pharisees power and authority themselves. Mm, okay, some self-interest perhaps. Anything else? Mm. Yeah, I think Go on down. Already a tricky situation for the Jews being basically in the Roman occupation. Mm -hmm. Already totally tricky. So that just compounds the issue. There's a bit of that going on, maybe a bit of exposure of their own religiousness as well. Right. Could be a few things going for their minds. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's some threat for them. Have you ever had um, a line manager, uh, you know, call you in at work and say, we need to have a, a chat about your performance? 
and then you, you turn up, and actually it's not just your line manager, it's your line manager's boss as well, or maybe the boss's boss, the boss's boss's boss, and it's pretty intimidating, right? And it's a little bit like that here, in that locally some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law have been bothered up till now. Now, the people from Jerusalem, which is HQ, this is Pharisee HQ, they have been sent to sort out what is going on. So these are not just intimidating people, these are the super intimidating people. So this is what's going on. They have expectations about demons. They do not think that what Jesus is doing is something that a prophet could do. They think it's, for some reason, they think it's something that only another demon could do. There's not a lot of logic here, because what Jesus effectively is saying is, you know, the house divided itself cannot stand. He's saying, are you saying that I'm working for Satan, effectively helping Satan to commit suicide? Is that what you're saying? So I'm, I'm demon-possessed helping other demons to commit to die. I mean, it, that doesn't make any sense. So did you want to yeah, add something? Go on. I don't know. Think about it. It's almost like Yeah. It's interesting. They seem to have more confidence in the power of Satan than they do in the power of God working through somebody. But it's the key thing, as you're right, the key thing is it's somebody who's not authorized. Yeah. Right? So Jesus has not been trained under a recognized rabbi. He has not been recognized by the Pharisees as someone who has authority. He is outside of the box, as Simon was saying, right? He's not in that box. And so therefore, he cannot be from God. And this is a really important point for you and I. Sometimes you don't, you, I don't know about you, but sometimes I don't feel like an authentic Christian because I don't fit all, in all the boxes that other, a lot of other Christians fit in, in terms of the, what people believe in, in Christianity. Or maybe we all, don't, none of us do exactly fit in somebody else's boxes. But it's not about the box you're in or how people think about you. It's about whether the power of God is at work in you. It's about whether the Spirit is in you and whether the Spirit is doing His work in you and through you. That's what matters, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But do you also notice how kind Jesus is here? Because they accuse Him. They're saying all kinds of things about Him. He's possessed by Beelzebub. But you see verse 23, what He does. It says, So Jesus called them over to Him and began to speak to them in parables. If it had been me, I would either have, have preferred a shouting match where I'd have just yelled at them that they're wrong or I'd have ignored them and got on with my own thing. He didn't have to engage them. These are opposing him. These are, these are not good people, basically. But still, he calls them over, says, look, let's have a chat. I've got something to do. And he tells them a whole parable, as he does here about the strong man and about the, uh, 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 the kingdom not being able to stand, the house not being able to stand. I really like the way that Jesus deals with his opponents. And that's maybe a lesson for us too, to treat people with respect, even when they have a different opinion, even when they're being um, unreasonable or judging us. There's a place to be reasonable like that. So um, let me just say one more thing before we go on. Uh, a lot of people ask me from time to time, and I have asked myself whether I have 
committed the unforgivable sin. And I just want to make a brief point on this because it comes up a lot in, in Christianity. However, at the end of verse 20, uh, 28 and 29, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. I've thought myself, I wonder if I've you know, ever committed the unforgivable sin. And I, I expect many of us have thought that or might do in the future and worry about it. And what I would say about it is this, that the issue is not whether the Pharisees have sinned. The issue is how they attribute to what they attribute the power of Christ. They attribute the power of Christ and his identity with demons and with Satan. So this is completely flipping on its head the truth. And that's very different from being somebody who thinks, I think I've sinned a lot. Or I think I might have sinned in a, in a way that's just so bad, I don't know if God could really forgive me. And that's about your feelings. That's not actually about the way that God works. God's grace covered Paul, someone who murdered in the name of God. I, I'm not sure that any of us are going to go quite that far. I actually really hope not. If God's able to do that, and if God is able to forgive Peter, who called down curses on his head to say, I didn't know who Jesus was, and then Jesus forgives him later in, at the end of John's gospel, this is the extreme nature of forgiveness. The issue here is that the Pharisees are making an assumption that what Jesus is doing is by the power of the devil. That's very twisted and something that is very difficult to be forgiven for because it's very different to difficult to change your perspective when you come to that settled position. You've made that assumption, you've made that judgment, and you live by it. And I think it's very unlikely that any of us have ever or will ever commit that kind of sin. If you're worried about this kind of thing, please do speak to me or somebody because it's not the kind of burden under which a Christian is meant to live. It's not it's just not. So please, let's, we'll move on from now for the moment. But I think it's a very important uh, point to make. So let's talk about what this might mean for us. Um, the family are opposing him. The, uh, the, uh, the authorized leaders of the day are opposing him. And what is Jesus doing? He is building a new family, a new Israel. So firstly, with the family, let's talk about the family, and then we'll talk about, well, let's talk about three things about being family. I see three things in this passage that remind me of what it means to have Jesus as my brother. And the first is that if we are a follower family, if we're following him as family, collectively and individually, the first thing I see is that we trust him. People who trust Jesus are his brothers, and he is their brother. Or we are his brothers and sisters, and he is our brother. It's about trust. In verse 32 of this passage, it says the crowd is sitting around him. Now, his family are trying to pull him out, and the Pharisees are trying to oppose him. But the crowd, his disciples included, the apostles there, they are sitting there listening, wanting to be taught. They trust him. They fundamentally trust him. They're at peace in his presence. They are learning from him. They are settled in their place saying, please teach us, Jesus. We want to learn. There's a trust there. They trust, they trust his goodness. They trust that his power will be used for good in the way that he's healing people and, and uh, casting out demons. They trust his strength to be stronger than anything that could oppose uh, them. They trust his identity, that he is who he says he is. And that's what makes all the difference. 
even when things look a bit mad, they still trust him. I find it really interesting and very human that Mary is leading the group of family to come and take care of him. This is Mary who had a special interview with the angel Gabriel. I mean, this is not a normal situation, right? She had that special time with Gabriel. She got a special message. She heard about who her son was, that he was to be son of God, that he he was the Messiah, that he was the one to bring peace to the earth, that he was to be extraordinary, different, unique. And she accepted it in faith. May the Lord's will be, be, I'll do it. Yes, okay. I mean, she showed tremendous faith in that situation. And uh, and early in that early stage of of, uh, Jesus' life. Now something, it seems like she's forgotten that. She's forgotten who he is. And this happens to you and me, doesn't it? We can have the most extraordinary experiences of God's love. Love that comes from other people. His power, answer prayer. You know, if we sat long enough and started to write them down, we could write down loads of answer prayers. If we talked about the miracles that God has done amongst us or through us or about uh, and people we know globally, we'd be here a long time writing it all down. We would remember how God came into our lives, who he used to introduce us to God, to study the Bible, to get baptized into Christ. The amazing things that God has done, how he's worked in our marriages and with our children and with our, with our extended friends and family. There are so many things God has done. We could all write a book if we wanted to. And yet still, sometimes I forget who God is. I forget how lucky I am. I forget that Jesus is with me. I forget that it's all going to turn out right in the end. I get very wrapped up, as don't we all. In our tri- and Mary here appears to be at least a little wrapped up in, my son, he's not eating right. So I've got to go and take care of him. She's forgetting who he is. If Mary could forget who her son was, and if I forget who her son is and who my Lord is, then, well, okay, you know, I, I've got not quite an excuse, but, it, you know, I'm me and Mary, you know, we're on the same page here. That seems okay. But we do forget when stuff happens that we didn't expect. But the first thing I think is that we experience the blessings of Jesus as our brother when we are consciously trusting him. Whatever's going on, even if it looks a bit mad, and quite a lot of things look a bit mad right now, even then we trust him. Secondly, Jesus' follower family are curious. By nature, a disciple of Jesus is curious. That's part of what it means to be a Christian, I think, is to be curious. To be curious about God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, about what he is doing, what he's doing in me, what he's doing in us, what he's doing in the world. When we lose our curiosity, we lose something vital in our faith. And that's the problem the Pharisees had. They were not curious. Here is somebody who's doing things never before seen. The closest parallel we have is in the days of Elijah and Elisha, which were hundreds of years before. And now we have somebody doing at least similar things and even more extraordinary things. What is going on? What is God doing should be the automatic question but they are not curious because they've already made up their mind. And this fixed mindset is so unhelpful in life, generally, and especially in the Christian life. God can't use me for this. God, I'm not a leader. I'm not someone with a lot of gifts. I'm not someone who's naturally bold. I'm not someone who finds prayer easy. I'm not someone who's very educated and I find reading the Bible difficult. I'm not this, I'm not that. And we have this list of things that are very clear to us that we are not. And it stops us from seeing what God can do. 
We stop being curious. What could I do? How good could God use me in this fellowship and beyond? How, what, what has God in mind for me, for my family? What has God got in mind for us as a church? We must not get fixed as a church. We always meet in this building. We always meet at this time on a Sunday. We always do a Wednesday night thingy for the men and the women or whatever. We, always, we don't always have to do anything almost. We need to keep our minds and hearts open to what the Spirit is doing. When we think about what it means coming out of lockdown, it's very challenging at times. When we think about this, this offer from the West Watford Free Church, they want us to take over. Should we do it or not? I don't, I'm not really sure, but I think we should be curious rather than decide, yes, no, maybe, no. I don't. Staying curious about what God is doing is key. That's, that was the problem. The fundamental problem the Pharisees had was not that they had an opinion, but that it was fixed and they were not curious. And we don't get to know Jesus fully as our brother unless we remain curious about him. What's he doing? Why is he doing that? Why is he allowing that in my life? What am I meant to be learning from this? What is there in Jesus' character I haven't fully explored? What is there in me that isn't fully Christ-like, that he's trying to draw out and grow in me? How can somebody around here help me with that? Who can I help with their growth towards Christ-likeness on this journey? These are questions for us to think about. As we, uh, as we go through life together. And the third thing I see, apart from trust and curiosity, is obedience. Obedience is part of what it means to have Jesus as our brother. As he says at the end of the passage, he looks at those seated in a circle around him and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever does God's will. Jesus' follower family are obedient. Now, I should add, I don't think when Jesus said that, he had a list in mind, like 10 commandments or 20 tips for discipleship or something. It's not like there's a tick list. It's more an attitude of, okay, Jesus, if you reveal something that I didn't know I needed to be practicing, then thank you for that and let me get on and practice it. Let me get on and and learn how to be somebody who does what God's will is. And that's one of the reasons we are taught from the Bible and one of the reasons we teach ourselves. One of the reasons you and I open our Bible and read it is so that we can find things that reveal what God's will is and then we can practice them. And in that way, we, we express, I suppose, a sense of trust with Jesus being our brother. And so we then end up loving what God loves. We end up loving his creation. We end up loving people, our friends and family, but also strangers, the hurting, the lost, the, those who need healing, those who need a healing touch and love. We love what he loves. We grow into that and then we obey him in that. Now, eventually, eventually Jesus' family came round, didn't they? In John chapter 7, his brothers still don't believe in him. And even at the cross, even though Mary's there at the cross, it's not clear from the way it's written as to whether she's there as an act of faith or whether she's there because, well, my son's on a cross and I should be there. But in Acts chapter 1, we find Mary, the mother of Jesus, and all the family in the upper room praying with the disciples. They have finally got it. They finally found the way to trust. They finally found their way to curiosity. They finally found their way to obedience. They did make it. And so what we see here is I don't think, this passage is often preached, and I think I've done it, as a passage about exclusion. 
like you've got to put Jesus ahead of your family. And there's truth in that, but it's not about pushing your family away. That's actually not what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, you know what? I want everybody in my family, including my family family. So my family family and my non-family family, I want to have them all in. What we need to do is God's will. And then we'll all be family, whether we're family family or just non-family family. We just need to do God's will. It's actually an invitation, strangely enough. It's not an exclusion, although it feels like that to the physical family. But he's really saying, no, you, you can all be my family. He wants everybody in. To do that takes us being curious and willing to change. Let me finish off with a, a, a thought, and then perhaps somebody could pray for us before we take bread and wine, so someone could be thinking about that. Change is disturbing, isn't it? Um, we sold our previous house eight years ago or so. And some of you will have had this kind of experience. It's a very strange experience. Leon and Sarah are going to have it soon. Um, you start showing people around your house. Uh, or the estate agent does, and perhaps you're in. And they come around. And, you know, you've, your house is all nice. You've made it all nice because you want to sell it, right? So, and they go around and... Sometimes the people that come to see your house are quite discreet about their thoughts and what they say, and they sort of mumble to each other about their thoughts. And sometimes they're not in the least discreet. And I had this when uh, couples, people would come to the house and they'd say, oh, we'd put, so in our front room, we had a really nice Edwardian fireplace that we had restored. You know, it had been covered up. We uncovered it, polished up the, 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 uh, the tiles there. We'd got the, taken out the gas fire and put in the proper grate thing again. And it was like the centerpiece of the, of the living room. And it looked really nice. And we loved that thing. And this couple came in and said, oh, we'd knock that out. <laughs> we'd take that whole chimney breast out, make it bigger. We'd have more room in here. And we'd probably knock this wall through into this room, which was the dining room. And I was like, no, you can't be doing this. It's my house. You can't knock a wall out. And they talk about changing the color of the, 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 the painting and the, and the wallpaper and all kinds of things they were going to do. And in the garden, they were going to put an artificial turf or something. And I was like, you, you, this is heresy. This is evil. This is, this is just a demon that's coming to my house. And you feel so possessive, even though you're trying to sell it. It's a, especially if you've lived there a long time. You've got so many memories connected with all these things, right? And we become very sentimental about the places we live. And it's a bit like when Jesus comes into our lives and the Spirit comes in, and he says, are you ready for some remodeling? Are you ready for a change of ownership? I'm not here just to give you some design tips. <laughs> I'm here to remodel your life. And then there can be that excitement. That sounds exciting, Jesus. You seem to know more about this than me. But then when he starts actually making changes, oh, how uncomfortable that is. But he's doing it because he has our best interests at heart. He actually knows how our house can function best. He actually knows that under his ownership, things will go much, much better. Marriage will go better. Family will go better. Relationships will go better. Our Community here will go better. And so I think the challenge for all of us, I include myself, is to let, is to, is to embrace the curiosity and embrace the obedience and let him do his work. And as we think about the future, I particularly want to encourage us to work on and develop and pray about and put effort into our relationships here. It's the area that's been most damaged by lockdown. 
We've not seen each other. We've not been together. We've not been able to pray together, walk together, talk together, eat together, drink together, confess sin together, cry together, laugh together. We've not, we need this. And I'd like to ask us to think about our schedule and think about your diary and think about where can I put some things on hold so I can spend time with my brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can have Jesus' brother, brother Jesus with us and build greater depth and greater love and greater connection so that Christ's love can be more in us as a community and that will make a big difference in this world. Building family. Curiosity, trust, and obedience. Let's, let me stop there and uh, ask somebody to pray uh, who would like to pray before we take uh, the bread and the wine. Mm-hmm.